Hello, I'm Anthony Sana. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. On Fusion Health Radio today, uh, this is episode number three. Uh, we've had a bit of a walkabout in and around health and nutrition with uh, Dr. Michael Smith, talking about what it is to be healthy and uh, even learning, according to Dr. Michael Smith, the 10 steps to abundant health, uh, as we listened to in the last uh, podcast. Uh, today, we're talking about the three healthiest ways of eating on earth. Now, when I hear that, I think about the healthiest ways of eating. Now, when I was a kid, the way that I ate is the way that I fantasize about today because it's not necessarily something that's something, it's not even on my radar to eat that way today, let alone am I able to even process food in the same way. Um, I'm surprised I'm still alive today <laughs> for the way that I ate when I was a kid. Um, I mean, I could probably tell you a couple of the gross things that I used to eat. Uh, one of my favorite things was, um, so uh, about Anthony, I am fairly gluten intolerant. Uh, I love it. It doesn't love me. And when I was a kid and I worked at an Italian bakery and I used to bring home fresh bread every day, um, I used to eat, um, I don't know, everything wrapped around Kaiser rolls. And, you know, my dad would be interested in the outside of the bread and the gooey, gooey part on the inside. Not so much because that's not Italian style bread for him. And he'd pick that stuff up and he'd throw it on my plate and I'd just scarf the stuff down. So I'm sure I'm still digesting those pieces of glue in my guts. I used to do, um, what was the one? It was, uh, if my mom ever made uh, uh, mashed potatoes. Mashed potatoes, tons of butter, inside a Kaiser roll and have a mashed potato sandwich. <laughs> kind of like the Italian version of a chip buddy. <laughs> right. Yeah, pretty gross. Yeah, actually I grew up in a hunting lodge up in uh, Northern British Columbia and for the better part of my youth uh it was deer moose elk um locally caught fish and you mostly mean. trapped for food i mean that's what we ate it was basically meat and livers and kidneys and but that was real food yeah i'm just saying that you know you, you ate what you ate as a kid and I, I, I ate as a kid and i guess i bring that up because what you eat in the first 10 years of your life forms your digestive system that explains a lot for me anyway yeah because i know uh, food that I was given. Uh, granted, my mom did the best that she could in terms of cooking, and her style of cooking was very um, old world traditional. Um, but um, I think my system was compromised even before I came to the table to eat whatever it was she put there. That on top of the uh, grape jelly, mustard, and salami sandwiches that I used to eat, I mean, that probably didn't help either. <laughs> probably tasted. <laughs> it tasted great. Yeah, so I, mean, I guess throughout the journey of your health career, what are some of the most interesting diets you've actually tried? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I've known for a time that I have an intolerance to bread and starchy kind of things like that, like pizza, and but I've always eaten them. I mean, there, there, was, a, there was a point in my life where I would eat uh, Johnny two-for-one pizza, period. I'd buy two of these pizzas, which were dirt cheap, you know, 13 bucks, you get two pizzas, and that would last me, you know, four or five meals um, around the clock, you know, midnight snack, pizza, breakfast, pizza, uh, dinner, guess what, it's going to be pizza. Uh, there was the pizza phase of my life, which 
probably didn't do me a whole lot of good, but um, I seem to be able to function. Um, probably not that well. I couldn't add to save myself back then. <laughs> Anything like specifically therapeutic you've done? Uh, well, that uh, embarrassment of a pizza diet progressed forward over the next, I guess, decade or so of my life where I actually did something extremely radical, extremely, uh, I'm doing air quotes here, healthy, uh, was a raw food vegan diet. Right. Uh, and I did that for about a year and a half, almost two years, um, believing that uh, what I was doing was the best thing for myself. Uh, not really knowing much about the fact that I couldn't digest half of the stuff that I was eating anyways, and eating a clean and green diet like that, uh, I lost weight. I'm not the biggest guy in the first place, but for somebody who weighs in at around 155 pounds to lose uh, 15 or 20 pounds, uh, that's a lot. And uh, I, you know, I'm still challenged with that weight loss today, and that was, I don't know, um, eight years ago? Mm-hmm. Um, or less, but still, it's you know that that that's that, that sort of idea. That it's like you know, it's a vegan diet. It's clean and green. I'm eating organic, blah blah blah, and still nothing. So, um, and that brings us, I suppose, to whatever it is we're talking about today. I mean, I know what you're talking about when you're talking about the three healthiest ways of eating on Earth, because I've studied with you and I've read your book. But for the sake of our listeners, uh, let's try to unravel what that's all about. Yeah. So I think the. The easiest way, I'll just give you a quick introduction to each of them, and then I'll explain why they're why they exist and what that means to you. More importantly, so the three healthiest diets would be what I call a healthy homesteader diet, because if you go back, you know, hundreds or even a couple of thousand years ago, that's the only way people have made food. You know, no stores, so you're not going to get it any other way. Before that, there would be what I would call the real paleo diet, which is like the paleo diet with some modifications. Uh, if you haven't heard about the paleo diet, that's basically framed around the way hunter-gathering humans would have eaten, which is lots of plants and protein and fat. And then, uh, previous to that, there's what I would call an ice age diet. Now, it's an interesting thing to to consider, what is for me, that when you look at the um, evolutionary history of our species, assuming that we come from primates, and I'm, I'm assuming that, I'm not going to say I know that, um, you know, it could be aliens, it could be the whole, you know, Bible thing, I don't know. But what I'm assuming is, uh, how does it, uh, if we come from scavenging primates, basically, how did those guys turn into us? Because we're a very considerably different species now. And we have this sort of vague, passive idea in modern science that we just evolved. But evolution requires a whole bunch of triggers and pressures and adaptive responses and stuff. So... And I'll put this graph in the show notes, but if you look at the actual ecological history of the Earth in the last three million years, it's been primarily a period of ice ages. So, I mean, this is a podcast, it's, you know, you're going to have to use your imagination here. But imagine that there's a graph and it's got a line that goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And the up is the warmer periods of time in human history, and the down is cold. Now, if you were to take that a graph with all that up and down stuff and put both hands at the bottom and then pick up one of your hands to the middle and say, okay, let's say if it was half ice ages and half temperate, you know, that's what that would have looked like. But in fact, if you took one hand, you'd have to lift it up to almost 80% of the way to the top of the graph to represent how much time we spent as a species in a temperate place, how much time we spent in a relative ice age uh, temperature, 
and how much time we've actually spent during actual critical glaciations where you know there's mountains of snow and ice coming down from the north and up from the south squeezing all of our primate brothers and sisters and all the other animals towards the equator you know imagine a couple of thousand years of some kind of bar fight while the food supply stabilizes itself but when there's ice ages there's hardly any forests or any grass you know, I often remind people, woolly mammoths were not made extinct by, you know, super cool native people with spears. It was a lack of grass. Anyway, just to give the mental imagery that that was a big uh, problem for everybody, including our early primate ancestors. And they made the leap of ingenious decision-making to head towards the ocean near freshwater runoff and learn to swim. And there's all kinds of science that proves this. And it's really interesting to me as, as a scientist... Uh, but also as the kind of audience recipient of what science tells us is going on, that it's a very marginal group of people that actually decide to teach what they call the aquatic ape theory. Right? But if you take apes and make them swim, um, they're going to turn into us, because we actually have the subcutaneous fat storage of a porpoise. Primates don't have subcutaneous fat storage, and that means where we can hold uh, fat beneath our skin uh, and between our skin and our muscles. Because we can all picture the really big person who's, you know, corpulent in the sense of the shape of their body. You can't do that with an ape, right? You can only do that with something that has learned to insulate itself from the, the cold of water. Also, uh, primates will only walk on two feet in two situations. One, if they're scenting for danger, which is the most popular thing. But, oh, we evolved about two legs because we were sniffing for tigers. On the savannah, it's like, well, maybe. The other most common thing that uh, primates will do when they are on two legs is when they're walking through water. Right? So imagine, you know, three million years ago, there's a bunch of apes at the beach hanging out. I actually call us beach monkeys. It's just sort of my nickname for who we are. And they're walking along, picking up crabs and knocking mussels off of rocks and eventually getting brave enough to, like, go deeper into the water. And eventually some brave heroic, you know, guy or girl decided to actually put their face under the water. And over time, now we've got this inverted air trap in our face. And I could go on and on with all the mechanical evolution stuff, but this is more about food. I just wanted to take the time to give everyone a bit of imagery about the fact that that makes more sense than anything else ever. And in fact, it's provable. Everything else is speculation. So just, by the way, one beach monkey to another, if you're living in that environment, you'd be eating raw fish. You'd be eating seaweed. Seasonally, you'd be eating eggs raw. You'd be walking out to your watershed or the freshwater source, picking plants that grew probably in a short growing season. You know, parsley, cilantro, watercress, stuff like that, uh, and maybe some greens. If you're particularly um, adventurous, maybe you went farther along and you found maybe a valley with enough plants to support bigger animals, and maybe you learned to hunt bigger animals eventually. Um, so, you know, that, that's sort of the beginning diet I call the Ice Age diet. And it's primarily an anti-inflammatory diet because of all the fish oil. So it's a very therapeutic opportunity for people with illnesses that are due to chronic inflammation, which is most chronic illness. So this is the, uh, the first sort of diet that um, I was introduced to when I started with your protocol. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought you were off your nut. I get that sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, the idea of eating uh, raw fish or uh, tuna, not tataki. Is it tataki? Sashimi. Sashimi. Uh, eating tuna in that way or salmon in that way um, or uh, braised cabbage or just real simple things. And doing that for, how long did I do that for? Was it two weeks? Three weeks? I don't know. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a time. And... Um, Initially, I thought it was interesting, and then it became 
tasty. Uh, and then it became, um, it let me, it, it helped me put my guard down around food. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was like the thing that actually put the chink in the armor around whatever I had built up, this story that I had around food and diet and what I needed to do for myself and blah, 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 and whatever it is. And all of a sudden, Dr. Mike comes along and goes, tap, <laughs> here, eat some raw fish, tap, eat some of this, tap, eat some of that. And it's all of a sudden my body started, stopped arguing with me. Yeah, quick story, because this is the, I don't know, the one that was the big win uh, to prove the point. There was a woman who came in a few years ago, and uh, she looked honestly like probably the worst I've seen many people that I've seen that are doing really bad. I was just like, oh my God, she's just, everything's sagging and gray and, you know, tell me what the hell is going on. <laughs> and she'd been in and out of the hospital um, several times a year for the past decade uh, for essential gastritis, which no one could figure out what was causing it. And uh, she was in the hospital on morphine, you know, and eventually I think her doctor retired and some new, new doctor came in and she was back in the emergency ward. And uh, she went up there to do the standard lie in the hospital on, you know, food going into your carotid artery so that she doesn't starve to death, taking massive amounts of painkillers and morphine and stuff. And the doctor says, I think you're a drug addict and I think you're lying and I'm not going to give you the morphine, so go home. And this is, I mean, if I ever have a chance to slip a time machine, I'm going to slap that guy upside the head. But anyway, um, she eventually comes in here because she's got, you know, nowhere else to go. And uh, we put her on the Ice Age diet, and I think it was like a five day on, then two days off to see what happened, and then back to seven days on, and eventually she did that like for a couple of months. And I didn't see her, so I was like, God, I hope she's okay, you know, whatever. I saw her three or four months later, and this strange woman ran up to me on the street and hugged me and starts talking to me in really, you know, manic I'm like, what the hell is going on? And uh, I was like, oh, it's you, because she looked completely different. Like, you knew you, you would be like, are you even related to that person? And just by eating highly anti-inflammatory foods, which, you know, gastritis, arthritis, anything that ends in itis is an inflammatory condition, she completely reversed this essential gastritis. You know, went back to her regular doctor, and they're like, what did you do? She says, I ate sashimi and eggs and this and that for the better part of two months, you know, I took a couple of breaks and they just, same thing, and they kind of went a little cross-eyed and said, yeah, well, whatever, you know, it was probably all in your head anyway, see you later. <laughs> um, so I would take the Ice Age diet a step further because um, the Ice Age diet is really about the anti-inflammatory part or about producing uh, what's called uh, nutritional ketosis. So it's the kind of thing that... Uh... Before, before I ask you what nutritional ketosis is, let me just try to understand. The Ice Age diet is not so much about nutrition as it is about uh, trying to get the body to actually cooperate with itself? Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Uh, I mean, that's totally how I experienced it, which was like, oh my god, this is awesome! <laughs> um, I'm eating all the... And I'm, uh, the, the screwy-eyed looks that I would get from my friends. What are you eating? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, okay, Ice Age diet, uh, the body's not arguing with itself. It's actually in a kind of health mode or healing kind of mode because it finally can. There's nothing compromising it to do that. You said that's nutritional ketosis, yes? Well, ketosis is a secondary thing, but, you know, like you said, the body's cooperating with itself uh, and can heal because of a lack of inflammation. 
Uh, when you have an area of the body that's under the state of inflammation, it can't really repair the tissue. And it's really complicated, you know, science as to why that's true. But um, if inflammation, no healing. No inflammation, yes, healing. Basic kind of equation. So if you're eating this way, and I would take the, the um, called the evolutionary movie in your head that I'm hopefully, you know, sharing with the, the listeners on the podcast. You know, we've got this these ice ages that were nearly extinction level periods of cold and then we had lots of moderate ice ages where you didn't have to stay by the ocean because that was the only source of food you could start wandering you know and, and find where animals were and that's when our you know early ancestors learned to eventually follow wolves and ravens to their kill or to the wolves kills and you know learn to scavenge and eat more um, you know animal parts and eventually learn enough about how hunting works from you know the other predators to try that on ourselves and we would still be looking way more like a primate than we look now when we were actually picking up you know stones and tools and you know chasing them off cliffs and all the other stuff that we learned to do so you know, we've got the Ice Age diet in the sense of fish and eggs and, you know, seaweed and all of that stuff, which is super anti-inflammatory, but also really high in fat. And now we're hunting animals living off of all of their fat and their organs and their brains and um, everything else and learning to dry their meat and, you know, eat, eat the flesh. But the, the nutrient density of the flesh of an animal is, you know, pale in comparison to the nutrient density of all of its organs and its tissue fats and stuff like that. So what eventually we learned to do around fire was to render the fat, you know, so it's kind of like you know, melted, I guess, which is what rendered means. And then we would pound up the, the meat, so it would turn into like hair uh, in the sense of what it would look like. And then you put the, the pounded meat into the fat and then maybe add some kind of uh, stabilizing thing, like say a juniper berry or something, uh, cedar leaves or things that just keep it from going bad. And that would be our primary food, which people call pemmican. Right, and that's what most people lived on. So you're living on a diet that's about, you know, seasonally, you know, forty to sixty percent fat in the summer and over eighty percent in the winter. Right. So that just let me just stop you there. A diet, <clears throat> a diet um, made of fat. Okay, my 2015 brain is hearing that, and going, "Are you nuts? Fat?" And when you look at the uh, <laughs> sorry, I. I just getting so used to those looks when I say stuff like that out loud. It's just like, well, there's only two of us in a room. But if I'm in front of like 200 people, it's like 200 people going, <laughs> head tilt, squirrely hide look. I'm like, yeah, sorry. Just give me a minute. It'll, it'll all work out. This guy's nuts. Yeah. So um, I'll bring it back to evolution for a sec. Because when you look at the evolution of every other species that's paralleled our evolution, because they're here, we're here, the biggest change of any organ in any other mammal uh is our brain. Like, our brains have doubled in two million years hmm. in, in terms of volume. And what's your brain made of? Fat. In uh, in a healthy form, yeah. Yeah. And, and if it's people... rendered and it's it's stable, I mean, if you take pemmican and you make it properly and you keep it covered, it's good at ambient temperatures for 20 years. Wow. And that's no fridge, no, no fancy chemical stabilizer. It's just what we lived on for most of our a pre-temperate history because until we get to the top of my previously you know attempted to, to gesticulate graph um it's like less than 20 percent of our evolutionary history from primate to people has been temperate and right now we're in this amazingly happy you know glowing warm jungle although we live in canada so that probably sounds like we got ripped off here but 
Um, you know, it's, it's amazing. We have so much more of a vast food supply, and now we can farm things, and we've got machines and everything. But for the vaster part of our evolutionary history, it was closer to the Ice Age uh, cold version of the paleo diet compared to the more modern warm version of the paleo diet. And if you eat that way, you know, summer 60% fat, winter 80% fat, more plants in the summer, more protein in the winter, you're going to spend most of the year in what's called nutritional ketosis, right? So a bit of a, you know, ramble to get there. But what happens with nutritional ketosis is your body starts running on ketone bodies, which are things your body produces as energy molecules um, instead of using glucose. Because if you're not eating plants, or primarily protein as your food source, you have to get energy from fats. And the energy structure we get from fats are called ketones. And there's three of them, and we could get into the details of that maybe in a more um, specific you know, ketogenic diet uh, podcast itself. But I think it's just an interesting uh, thing to be aware of, that most of our evolution was your brain running on something that doesn't include sugar. And by today's standards, uh, that's... Most, most people can't even do a day without some kind of carbohydrate without feeling like they're going to kill their neighbor. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been there. Not killing the neighbor, but okay. wanting to feel like hey. <laughs> okay. Just Just so we're clear. I'm just going to move across the room and feel a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so nutritional ketosis is that it's actually possible for um, uh, the body to, to subsist on a, you know, 50% or greater diet of fat. Okay. Um, and function and do all kinds of things. And that was, um, uh, I guess, part and parcel of the Ice Age diet? Well, let's just sort of extend the Ice Age diet from a therapeutic perspective, because when I'm using the Ice Age diet as an anti-inflammatory thing, it's mostly around the raw fish or the, you know, fish oils or other things, because they're so anti-inflammatory for every part of you, your GI tract, your vascular system, and your brain. So, I mean, you want to make things feel better, that's you know, as long as you're getting sashimi grade and it's not full of parasites, you're fine. And for the people listening to this right now who may be going, you're a crazy person because of all the mercury in fish. Uh, most fish is higher in selenium than a, a lot of our food supply, or foods in our food supply, and the selenium will actually bind to the receptors that uh, mercury would typically bind to before mercury gets there. So the mercury can actually stick to your body. If mm-hmm. you're eating a lot of seaweed, the, it'll, the seaweed structure will bind to the mercury and take it out of you before it becomes a problem. You know, just to say, because always, that's always the big hand in the back of the, the auditorium is, what about the mercury? It's, it's okay. And if you're even still nervous, go to the health food store, buy a bunch of selenium. Take that every day before you eat your big bowl of sashimi or, you know, other fish. It's just been kissed by your pan, you know, because <laughs> you want those fish oils uh, in your body not having been damaged by temperature. So I would take that. That's like pure Ice Age anti-inflammatory. And then there's the Ice Age diet or the, you know, low-temperate, cold paleo diet, which is the Ice Age diet plus organ meats plus way more animal fat, um, ghee or clarified butter, coconut oil. I mean, nowadays, you know, it's not like you have to go and live literally off animal livers. You just have to find the nutritional stuff that would uh, mimic the nutrient proportions of that, you know, cold time paleo diet and or the Ice Age diet. And you're eating the most nutrient-dense food on Earth. I mean, there's nothing in that that can hurt you, especially if you're getting organic grass-fed animals. So the Ice Age diet progresses to, um, I guess, the next rung up the ladder in evolution, the next evolutionary step. Yeah, so the second diet in the three healthiest ways of eating would be what I call the real paleo diet. So right now, as, as it's packaged and it's becoming a huge groundswell 
in the the health space online and you know there's a new paleo book every you know 15 minutes on amazon which is great uh in the sense that that's better than the standard american diet you know by an astounding amount um the paleo diet is basically to mimic what a temperate paleolithic hunter-gatherer would be eating in the sense of you know a certain amount of plants a certain amount of maybe nuts and seeds um lots of uh animal products uh, lots of other fats and things and that's usually people who are trying to avoid autoimmune diseases and it's a very specially popular with weightlifters crossfit athletes and stuff like that because you're you're going to get the results you want faster if you're avoiding things like grains so that's sort of the big thing with the paleo movement so as i mentioned i grew up in a hunting lodge uh, i actually have a, a native grandma and a sami grandpa which are the indigenous people of uh Norway and another grandpa who's from Europe but he spent 32 years as an actual community mentor uh community member as a hunter with the Nadene people of Northern Canada so I grew up basically what you would call as a bush indian I mean we hunted and trapped and tracked and fished and you know did all our own stuff so I can say I'm kind of perhaps tangibly more familiar with what a paleolithic way of dealing with food would be than your average paleo cookbook author and in fact it would be really fun um to take the top 10 paleo cookbook authors into the forest for 3 or 4 months and see if they can figure out how to grill meat <laughs> because as much as i love the paleo diet every book has got like grill marks on everything it's like oh yeah the paleolithic people had barbecues magically somehow before metal tools and they always cooked that way um not, not true <laughs> unless something really weird is going on anyway so no self-respecting indigenous paleolithic person raised by their grandparents would cook meat over a fire on a stick because eventually if you ate that way you would kill yourself with what's called rabbit starvation or protein starvation so as much as i love the paleo diet movement and how much benefit that's doing for people the concern i have is grilling meat makes meat dangerous dangerous because it's uh changing what the meat actually is nutritionally yeah so the proteins tighten up if if you're grilling it or barbecuing it uh, makes it harder to digest and you're getting this super abundant nutrient dense food and you're trying to get the most out of it but you've prepared it in a way that's thwarted your ability to digest it and even more crucially like serious moment folks put everything down this is potentially like game changer the grill marks on meat uh the black part as much as we all love that particular fetish um it's full of what are called advanced glycation end products which are something that happens when you overcook uh proteins and carbohydrates together and there's going to be some sugars in the, in the meat anyway those cause inflammation in your GI tract they cause inflammation in your vascular system and your vascular system has enough vascular tissue to go around the equator of this planet eight times so that's not a good idea and it causes inflammation and damage to your brain. In fact, grill meat has more uh scientific evidence as a cause for Alzheimer's than uh, Alzheimer's disease than almost anything else that we've swung a bat at for the cause of Alzheimer's. So, this is why I call the real paleo diet because if you braise your meats, roast your meats, do them in broths, all the other stuff, eat the kind of nose to tail thing, uh eat seasonal local plants, not too much fruit. uh some nuts and seeds preferably soaked in some kind of uh, brine or uh, acid like lemon juice or vinegar you're now eating what indigenous people pre-homesteader people would have been eating for all 
capital A-L-L, <coughs> of our adventure here since we left the beach. So the uh, mainstream paleo idea is kind of on the right track, Yeah, but they're... Addicted to gastro-porn images of meat with grill marks for some reason. Yeah, yeah, to say the least. I mean, I, I look at some of those things around paleo, and I see... Um, I think that somewhere inside of me, I still have the, the raw food vegan sort of cringing at these mountains of meat that have come off of bar- barbecue. Mm-hmm. I mean, a couple of ideas run through my mind. Number one, I think, my God, what does it actually take to actually produce that much food? I mean, there's everything in terms of the environmental concerns. And then I always think, well, what does it take to actually digest that? You know, um, some of some of the some of the things that I ate as a kid that I actually um, was repulsed by are the things that I should actually be eating today. I mean, you know, a beef carpaccio or, um, you know, meats that were more raw than they were cooked um, were, I mean, to my palate back then, kind of gross, but to my palate today, it's like, oh my God, this is so delicious. And I think it's delicious because uh, not just how my tongue experiences it, it's what my body says with what it has to do with it. You know, and my stomach's not, you know, shaking its fist up at my mouth going, you dummy, <laughs> what did you put in here? You know, there, there's no argument going on. So um, let's recap here. Uh, you've got the Ice Age diet, uh, or sorry, I don't know if diet's the right word. The Ice Age way of eating. Mm-hmm. Let's, not, let's, get, let's, let's not get people running out to the store to look for a book called The Ice Age Diet, according to Dr. Michael Smith. Um, we've, got, we've got that sort of uh, evolutionary uh, way of eating. Uh, then it goes to the real uh, paleo version of that. What's mm-hmm. next? Uh, what I call the healthy homesteader diet. Okay. So the healthy homesteader diet would be what people ate when they actually had some kind of farm. So where I grew up, uh, we didn't have much of a farming thing going on, but we did have a root cellar. So we trade or buy or barter, you know, a lot of roots um, and, and other things, and we put them in this literally even this hole inside of the hill with a door on it and much of mesh to keep the mice from eating all of our food. And uh, that was winter. It was the root cellar and what was hanging up in the barn from going hunting. Uh, and, and, you know, we ate some fry bread and bannock and stuff too because uh, it's sort of like native pizza without the pizza and stuff on top of it. It was so good. Um, anyway, so uh, if you look at the healthy homesteader diet in the sense of what you're allowed to eat, now you can have things like oats or maybe white rice or barley or buckwheat or other things in the sense of grains. But if you're going to eat those grains, first, you always want to try and cook them in fat. Maybe I'll come back to that in a bit. Um, but if you're eating grains, you also have to eat a lot of kefir and yogurt, um, you know, uh, sauerkraut, uh, kimchi, things like that. Fermented foods. Yeah, it has to be lacto-fermented. And there's sort of this, uh, it's like we have this aversion to terminology. I, don't, I only want to know five words, you know, but fermented is different than preserved. Right. You know, fermenting things will preserve them, but if you're using vinegar to preserve something as a chemical, you're it's like an antibiotic, right? You're, you're basically killing off things that are important to you, whereas the probiotic nature of uh, lacto-fermented foods is that they're full of living, happy bugs that do really good things for you. But when you eat a lot of starch from grains, you're feeding your good bugs, your bad bugs, and your really, really bad, nasty can't say that word on the show, bugs that are going to torment your life because once they're in there and they've uh, got a population and some in, some momentum, they're very hard to get rid of, right? So healthy homesteader, now you can have some bannock or fry bread, you can have you know, rice and stuff like that, uh, oats, barley, uh, cooked in fat. So just to very quickly touch in on that, 
Um, <clears throat> big fan of imagery. If you took a, a mental image of the, I don't know, geography of Europe and recognized that all of these grains initially were traded up into Europe through the Middle East, you would initially go, well, it's going to be Italy and Spain that are going to have to deal with these new foods first because they're in Southern Europe, right? And when you look at how they cook rice in Italy, it's a risotto. Which is rice... Cooked in fat and broth. And broth, lots and lots of broth. Yeah, and then you look at paella from Spain, and what's that? It's Spanish risotto, which is cooked in fat and broth, and then you throw in sausages and meat and stuff on top of it, because the rice is considered a vehicle for food. And this has to be said. In Asia, it's not a mistake that they eat white rice. They figured out a long time ago that brown rice is actually eventually going to cause you problems. Yes, it has more nutrients in it, but it also has a lot of anti-nutrients. So they came up with the ingenious process of let's hull the brown part off the brown rice, feed the brown part to the pig and eat the pig, and then we'll eat the white rice. But back in the day, you know, say 2,000 years ago, and I'm, I'm trying to make an, a gesture with my hands, but um, I'm trying to make a gesture that demonstrates the size of a bowl, right? So here I've got my hand in the shape of a very small little bowl, and that's called a rice bowl. So when you sat down to a meal in a traditional Chinese family a couple of thousand years ago, uh, the food would be on the table. And the vehicle for food, the rice, which is kind of like a filler, it's a social compact in Asian culture that says, let's share the food. I'll get my chopsticks and I'll grab a chunk of food and I'll dip it in the consensual sharing bowl of rice and eat that food. Right? Because otherwise it'd be rude to just sit there and eat all the real food, right? <laughs> And over the last 2,000 years, that rice pool has gone from something that, you know, was tiny, and now it's like, you know, what you might do is use as a cereal bowl. You know, and for a lot of traditional Chinese people who remember how things worked a long time ago, they think it's hilarious when non-Asian people go into a Chinese restaurant and, in their mind, eat a bowl of ketchup. Because it's meant to be something you dip your food in to extend the meal for your friends. Right? So, anyway, just, just to have a little aside there, but if you're going to eat... Uh, starchy food like grains, even starchy food like potatoes, yams, sweet potatoes. The more fat you put in there, the better you're going to do. So I'm picturing the um, oceans of uh, coconut curry, yam coconut curry, uh, stuff that I've made uh, over the past couple of years, um, cooking up all those yams or sweet potatoes or whatever it is that I put in there, uh, cooked in uh, coconut milk, mm -hmm. which is, you know, and I can drink coconut milk straight out of the can. I love this stuff. <laughs> But I don't. I use a spoon. Um, so that, that type of cooking is actually a, a healthier vehicle because it allows the, uh, and I'm asking this as much as I'm saying it, by cooking starchy stuff in fat, it allows the body to better assimilate it. Yeah, so the, the image I often use is um, if you were to take a piece of broccoli, and I like broccoli, and you just eat it, when that broccoli gets to your stomach, the communication enzymes between your stomach and your pancreas. We're going to call that the blue phone. Your, your stomach's going to pick up the blue phone and say, you know what, there's this piece of you know, carbohydrate. It's got a little bit of vitamins. It's 90% water. So, you know, there's really not a lot going on. And the pancreas says, all right, well, when it gets down to my door, I'll throw a few enzymes at it. But, you know, yeah, it's not really that interesting. If you took that same little crown of broccoli, dipped it in, uh, you know, garlic butter sauce or coconut oil or homemade mayonnaise or something like that, and you ate it, 
as soon as it touches the wall of your stomach, your stomach's going to pick up the red foam, which is, oh my God, there's some really important stuff here. And clinically and literally, your pancreas will secrete 10 times, I'm holding up all my fingers, 10 times, the volume of enzymes to tear through everything that's in your GI tract to get to the fat. Because fat, in terms of our species, has always been the most important and the hardest to get thing. So you're by right. coating food in fat, you're basically forcing your body to actually eat what you've eaten. Well, you're gonna, you have a 10 times better chance of assimilating the nutrients and especially the fat-soluble vitamins if it's in fat. And then, I mean, not to go too far afield here, but you know, this is stuff I've come to in my own experiments on my own self and with all my patients, which sometimes turn out to be lab rats, but it's going fairly well. Um, <clears throat> when you look at all this stuff and you start to wonder, you know, where did we go wrong? What happened? Um, and I won't get into the conspiratorial side of it, but if you look at cookbooks from even 200 years ago, everything was in a sauce. Everything had fat. I mean, it was, everything was just rolled in some kind of sauce or fat. In, in my lifetime, I've seen people uh, poo-poo uh, traditional French cooking because there's too much fat, there's too much butter, there's too much uh, whatever it is. Um, and they have some of the best health statistics in the modern world. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, <laughs> even even with my own background, I mean, uh, things that um, I know and love to be healthy foods to eat are things that are kind of fatty. I remember my dad telling me when he was a kid that they would actually have um, blocks of fat that they would actually shave off in the middle of the winter, whatever it was. You know, I mean, that was what they actually subsisted on was the fat on the back of the the pigs that they butchered, I mean, they ate everything, you know, from nose to the other end of the animal, yeah, nose yeah. to tail. Well, here, here's an interesting uh, thing. So you have an Italian background. Hmm. The idea of pasta came from China 400 years ago. Okay. Um, tomatoes, tomato, uh, potatoes, uh, eggplants, and bell peppers all came from Central America. So when people think about Italian food, you have to go back 500 years and then say, oh, and what did they eat? before, you know, Chinese noodles and all these foods from Central America showed up. Because everyone, I mean, listening probably thinks of Italian food, oh, it's lasagna and spaghetti and, you know. Hmm. Well, we've already talked about how it is that I can't eat that way. Yeah. Italian <laughs> Italian food for me um, is kind of, if you're familiar with the word charcuterie, mm -hmm. um, it's uh, a little bit of uh, dried meats or some kind of uh, pate, um, cheeses, uh, which are good and fatty, um, you know, uh, a lot of meaty, uh, cheesy, uh, fatty kind of foods um, with a bunch of vegetables. Yeah. So do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I've been doing. Yeah. It's been working. So yeah. so, anyways, I mean, we're, we're we're talking about diets and we're talking about sorry ways of eating. We're mm -hmm. talking about ways of eating and um, your perspective on how that all works. Um, and again, at the end of the conversation here, I'm sort of left with, okay, so how does that work for me as a real person? So maybe you can talk a little bit about how your perspective on ways of eating has been working in your practice with your, with your patients. In the so I give people two choices, depending on how far into the, the challenge of complex diseases they are. Choice one is we're going to go with the healthy homesteader diet. And if you don't get better, we're going to go to the paleo diet. And if you don't get better, we're going to go with the ice age diet. Other people who maybe are a little more frisky about what they want to try, um, or they're in a really seriously challenging place, they're going to do the Ice Age diet, 
typically five days and then see how they do because there's a, a, a appetite fatigue intolerance that can happen if you're just living off the same thing too much. Um, it's also one in four people has an egg sensitivity, so sometimes that doesn't work when you have to get away from the eggs. After they've done about four or five days of the pure anti-inflammatory ice age, then we kind of try and do it in a more extended period. And then we try and get them into nutritional ketosis. So now they're eating fish and all this other stuff, plus animal fats and uh, some animal proteins, some plants, but mostly they're, they're subsisting off fat. And uh, if they start to get better, and they do, because if you stop eating things that hurt you, your body says, thank you very much, and thanks for turning off the inflammation and giving me all the nutrients I need to run. Then we say, let's test out the paleo diet and see how you do. And we do what's called the autoimmune paleo diet, which doesn't have any plant embryos, no nuts, no seeds, no greens, no beans at all. Uh, and often, often there's a lot of supplements involved in treatments and other things. But if they do okay on the autoimmune paleo diet, then we graduate to the real paleo diet, you know, which is the paleo diet minus all the frying and cooking and barbecuing and charring and stuff like that. And uh, if they're doing okay still in terms of illness and symptoms, uh, improving, then I say, okay, you can try the actual like packaged paleo diet if you want to do a barbecue some food and, you know, have a nice, really, really good steak. Sorry, I'm drooling a little bit. Because, um, you know, once in a while that's nice to have, right? Um, and if they're still doing okay, then we say, okay, you know, I mean, let's either stay here. And most people are like, I want to eat like this forever. I feel amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, but some people are like, they have a, uh, it's called a metabolic type uh, where they have a certain oxidation rate, which that's another podcast, but uh, they need a certain amount of starch in their diet or else they become really, really unhealthy. They're cold, they're clammy, they have no energy, their moods are all over the place. So it's like, okay, we're going to get you. So we say we're going to get you onto a really healthy homesteader diet with a really good version of uh, a bannock mix, which is a different kinds of flours and stuff. So you can make your own, you know, Yorkshire puddings or fry breads and stuff like that. Maybe we'll add some uh, sweet potato starch pasta, uh, more root smash, which is roots boiled up with, you know, lots of butter mixed in. Um, and then, you know, if they're still feeling like, you know, I, I, I need me a grain, sorry, but without grains, I'm, I'm just not okay. Then we go to that next level, the homesteader diet where they're making risotto and uh, jambalaya and paella and stuff like that, uh, with lots of food added to the rice. Cause again, rice is the vehicle, the food's the food. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are fine there. Uh, eventually people that are doing the homesteader diet are like, you know, I must be bomb proof now. I can eat anything. And they go off on a tear and they eat a bunch of, uh, say, gluten-containing grains or they have too much sugar or they get back on the alcohol-caffeine kind of festival. And then they come back three months later going, yeah, so, uh, Michael, it turns out um, I overdid it and I'm really back to where I started again. And it's like, okay. The, so. the image that comes to mind is uh, Wiley Coyote <laughs> um, getting hit in the head by an anvil. Yeah, but I mean, I've, I've had people try... Run, running into that brick wall. I think people try the protocol from the homesteader back to the Ice Age diet, from the Ice Age forward to the homesteader diet. Um, and there's a certain amount of success statistically, given people's lifestyle and backgrounds and stuff like that. But what's interesting is a lot of people try it and they can't do it. Because hmm. it, it does, I mean, you have to organize your shopping, your cooking. You know, you've got to, usually I have people do what I call a grandmother day, where, you know, one day a week you're cooking up a whole bunch of stuff for the rest of the week because, you know, most people don't have time to do anything anymore. So once well, and it, it goes back to the idea that we shared in uh, the previous uh, podcast about uh, being willing to actually mm-hmm. step into um, a health regime for yourself, yeah. you know, getting out of your own way so that you can actually help yourself. So I think the big part of the 
the roadblock that people come up against is themselves, their own ideas around food, what their family says, what their neighbor says, what somebody says about how they are, how they're eating, what they're doing for themselves. So um, if they can just get out of that kind of um, paralysis, mm-hmm. you know, um, around their own ideas around food, uh, they might be able to help themselves. Yeah, and the reason I bring this up is that um, is just to encourage people to give any of these things a try. And if the try doesn't go very well, you know, don't go back to the worst things that you've done. Try and find some middle ground and allow yourself the patience and the, the time it takes to sort of sneak up on different habits. Because, <clears throat> again, lots of people come in and, and, you know, word of mouth, they've heard about my thing and what I do. And uh, they, they're ready to take notes and go, okay, I'm going to do it. And they just, it's just too much for that right now in their lives. And then typically I'll see them a year later where they're now on, you know, an antidepressant and uh, erectile dysfunction drug or, you know, hormone replacement therapy or something. Things are not going well. And they're like, okay, th- this is completely out of control. I mean, I don't want to be on the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical road, you know, get me off of this stuff. So it's like, okay, so we're going to have to go back and go through these things. And then people are like, you know, now I, I get it. You know, it's, I'm, I'm motivated. The consequence of being, you know, on two or three pharmaceuticals is it's motivating enough because I mean, once you start going down that road, you know, you start talking to your you know older family members and they're on 15 pharmaceuticals and you're like, oh, is that where I want to go? Or am I willing to try this seemingly crazy person's, you know, diet therapies and, and uh, you know, ways of healthy eating that has an 85% success rate with the most complex illnesses on the planet? Well, it's, it, the, the analogy that comes to mind around that is how, um, I mean, if I've eaten a particular way and I've got this particular health result that's not working for me today, um, it's taken me years to get this, uh-huh. right? So to all of a sudden switch gears and go into a different direction, um, it's, it's like trying to turn a cruise ship. <laughs> you know, it takes a little while to do that. And then um, if all of a sudden uh, I decide not to choose to turn the ship around and there's a iceberg, floating yeah. in my way, and all of a sudden I have to, then the motivation's stronger. I'm going to be reefing on that wheel. I'm going to be saying, okay, I'm turning the wheel. I am totally going this way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for myself when I think about um, what it is that I've done to navigate differently around my diet and nutrition. And I, I totally hear how you see that for other people as well in your practice. Yeah, so if you're listening to this, well, obviously you're listening to this, <laughs> as you listen to this, um, have a little conversation for yourself. Maybe get up, go for a walk, get some fresh air, and just go, you know, could I commit to this homesteader diet? You know, could I make my own kimchi, or can I buy some unpasteurized kimchi that's actually good for me? Or, you know, map it out in your head and just wear it as kind of like a costume for half an hour and see if that actually seems doable, you know. And depending on your relationship with health, illness, or disease, um, you know, the motivation factor may be more or less, but... Honestly, if you have a disease, this is going to help you. If you're feeling ill, but no one's told you what's wrong, this is going to help you. If you're healthy, you're going to get healthier. You know, if you've got some kind of fitness goal or weight loss goal, um, and you're feeling fairly healthy, but you just want to see that happen more, doing these things is going to help you. Because this is how we got here, folks. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. If we turn into the most efficient uh, predator on the planet eating this way, it's probably good for you. <laughs> and, and now we're smart enough to make computers and spaceships, so it's probably good for you. 
I'm, I'm going to agree with you there. You know, we've gotten this far into the podcast, and we need to wrap this up. Just looking at the clock on the on the wall here, uh, we've gotten this far into the podcast without uh, talking about uh, your book that talks all about this. Oh yeah, right. I've got a book. Such yeah. a bad so, salesperson. So you know, all of these all, all of these people have been listening to this podcast, thinking, "Yeah, okay, but but well, tell them about your book." So I've got a book uh, called Returning to an Ancestral Diet. You can get it um, right now through my website. I'm just getting a thing with Amazon figured out, so that'll happen soon. Um, there's also an ebook, uh, which is about half as much as the book book. It's a 600-page book. It's got 500 recipes, gourmet food from around the world. So if anybody has any kind of question about how to actually prepare food in this manner, you kind of illustrate the healthful ways of cooking or these healthful ways of eating. Yeah. Pretty simple. Yeah, so besides the 500 recipes of gourmet food, and why wouldn't, I'm just going to ask this sort of weird, you know, open-ended question, why wouldn't you want to spend the rest of your life eating gourmet food, which turns out to be that weird local, seasonal, healthy, fresh, delicious, knob of butter on your steak way of eating food? Because that would be awesome. Yeah. (laughs) So besides 500 recipes, there's also about 100 pages in the introduction that walks you through uh, the basic evolutionary perspective perspective. and then nutritional science 101, like this is this is why what's good is good and what's bad is bad, and um, it's irrefutable science. So I'm not making anything up. Yeah, and for those of you who are afraid of the science, uh, that is a very small portion of the book. It's mostly recipes. And I didn't even do much of a geek out in in, in that book. I just sort of went like you know kind of grade twelve ish. This is what everybody everybody should have learned that stuff in high school. I mean, yeah, I was away that day, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, great. Uh, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this has been Fusion Health Radio, talking today about the three healthiest ways of eating on Earth. Uh, If you like what you've heard today, you can tune in to Facebook. Uh, Look for Fusion Health Radio there, and you will get more details about this episode. Uh, There might be a download or two, and there's even going to be a link to uh, the book that Michael just spoke of. Um, What's up for the next podcast? Uh, We're going to talk about how martial arts principles... Um, basically reinforce everything that it takes to go through the process of healing. Tune in, folks. Uh, Looks like there's a lot more to learn about uh, being healthy, according to Dr. Michael Smith. Again, Fusion Health Radio. We'll see you next time. Have a great day. Cook well, eat well, and be well. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.